0: The Mini Mission, an offshore sailing podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gibbonsna, and this is episode number eight. Welcome back to another episode where we talk all things related to the Class Mini 650 and the Mini Transat. It is Friday afternoon, October 20th, and I am recording this from Santa Cruz de La Palma in the Canary Islands once again. In this episode, I want to recap the first four days from the leg one of the Mini Transat. It's just me this time, and I will discuss the first two AAR blog posts. And for those of you who are not familiar, AAR is just a term in the military that we use called after-action reports. That's um, a pretty standard, uh, normally more of a standard template or a thing that we do after every uh, training or operation or deployments or things like that. Uh, we type out after-action reports, you know, so we call them AARs. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's just the format I've been doing for these post-race recaps, Um my format's definitely a little different from the military ones, but it's just the kind of idea of the concept of doing an AR after every single uh, race. Um, I've kind of enjoyed doing it, being able to share all the details with you. So for this uh, episode, I will read through part of the blog post from parts one and two, and some additional commentary that didn't make it into the writing. So I'll try to give you guys a, a little additional insight into uh, the first couple days of the race. These posts are up on my website now. So make sure to check them out at pgnoceanracing.com. All right, let's dive into this. Mini Transit Leg 1 AAR Part 1, breaking down the first two days of the race. The start of the 2023 Mini Transit was originally planned for 24 September. However, due to severe weather approaching the Bay of Biscay, it was postponed to the following day. As the forecast updated and with the addition of a waypoint to force the fleet towards the southern part of the bay, the race was fortunately able to proceed. So, you know, it's kind of funny. This has been a three-year-long project getting up to this point, And having that extra 24 hours actually ended up being very beneficial. Um, because, you know, things go when you're getting ready for a big offshore race. There's always last-minute things that happen. You sometimes get a little behind timeline. And, oh, by the way, just, you know, myself work on the boat, plus the help with uh, Jane Millman, my girlfriend, who came in for you know, the last two weeks while I was over there. Um, so huge help from her, but it's just the two of us work on the boat. So having the extra 24 hours, definitely not a bad thing for going offshore. Um, and plus just trying to figure out the weather with the big low pressure system that was pushing the babes today. It was a smart call at the race did delaying the race by a day. Um, but with that being said, we didn't know the, you know, when it was postponed initially, you don't know when they're going to actually do the race. So we found out the night before, um, the actual start date. So it's not, a, you know. It's nice having that delay, but you also don't know exactly when you're going to be starting. So there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into it, uh, which makes for an interesting situation. And it was a little bit of a shame because the race was supposed to be on Sunday, which is really cool because a lot of the town comes out. Everyone's off work, obviously. Um, But, you know, having it on Monday, um, still had some great, you know, supporters come down and everything. A lot of locals, but just not as big as it normally is on a Sunday. Um, But it is what it is. So on... 25 there sorry excuse me on 25 September the race was scheduled to start at 1330 local time so that's 1130 UTC uh, which note I'll be talking more UTC throughout the rest of the race. but it's 1330 local time with 90 minis in the fleet there was a long starting line set. all of the series and prototypes or protos uh, start at the same time but are scored separately. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting fact that we're all in the starting line together. a lot of the prototypes are a lot faster than the series boats. Um, but it's pretty cool being on the line at the same time. Um, and then, you know, we're scored separately. They do do an overall ranking, but normally the prototypes uh, finish first. Um, so that's why the series have a different ranking. And it makes sense. I mean, we have shorter mast, shorter keel. We're made out of fiberglass aluminum mass. The protos are made out of carbon fiber, canning keels, bigger mass. Like it just, it just makes sense. Um, but this certainly factors into the game plan when trying to get off the starting line. Uh, so, you know, it's, Generally, you don't want to necessarily start right next to a proto, but as you'll see, that doesn't always isn't always possible. So there's a great video on YouTube that I have on there um, with some highlights from the uh, first two days of the race. Go check that out, and I definitely I put in some footage from the live start um, that was captured by a drone uh, from the offshore social club. So they did a great job uh, capturing the start. So definitely go check that out. So while in sequence, the race committee put us into a brief postponement. And that really helped me out for a few reasons. Uh, first, when we went into the sequence, I was farther down on the line on the right side towards the race committee boat, and I wanted to sail up to the pin end or the left side. So with that large wind shift to the left, it was taking longer than planned to get to the favored end of the left starting line. Uh, yeah, so that postponement definitely, definitely helped me out. And additionally, uh, another big factor is the class mini usually prohibits the use of bowsprits and struts deployed before crossing the starting line for safety reasons. However, this rule was amended so that the boats could have them deployed, but only if they were to immediately use that sail, their code zero spinnaker on the pole at the start. This amendment to the rule was supposed to prevent boats from gaining any advantage they might have with their bowsprit deployed. Um, when you think about you know, keeping boats away from you and everything, gives you a little more room um, throughout the starting sequence and had to do with the spirit of the rule. A um, little interesting tidbit on this. So they amended the rule, but they weren't very clear on it in the sense where at the the night before the start of the race, they told us in person, if you deploy your pole, you have to use a sail with it. Um, so again, the code zero that's furled or the spinnaker, but it was kind of it wasn't very clear because it's not written in the rules that you had to use a sail. So in theory, you could have your code zero furled and then you choose at the start: do you really want to go with that code zero? Do you not? Um, but they expe- basically explained to us like spirit of the rule: we're allowing you to do this. It's amendment. So if you're going to use up the, the Spinnaker pole and have it deployed, you have to use a sail. Um, so kind of a little bit of a gray area. It wasn't in writing, but they told us at the skippers meeting. And so it was a really big factor that we had to consider. Uh, the, yeah, so as I keep on reading this, the use of the valve was a big decision that each skipper had to make before going to sequence. Because it takes time to set up and distracts you while maneuvering within the fleet. You know, trying to put the pole out when you have a minute or two minutes left to the start is too late at that point. Because those last one or two minutes, you're trying to, you know, drive around through the fleet next to boats. And so you really got to get it set up before the sequence starts. Uh, the starts are highly competitive, and the minis do get really close to each other throughout the starting of sequence. Initially, I did not have the Bowsprit deployed because it was borderline between upwind and a close reach start. Uh, but with the wind shift to the left uh, and a brief five-minute postponement, I was able to change my plan and ended up deploying the Bowsprit with the code zero hoisted, but for and ready to be used. And you can see terminal leave in one of the photos I have lining up for the start with the Code Zero still furled there. And I think in that picture, I was probably about maybe 8 to 10 boat lengths below the line, maybe like a minute to, go. Um, it's, hard to it's hard to tell with the, where the line is in the time-wise, but uh, I was basically ready, coming up on tack, maybe at like 3 or 4 knots, just kind of cruising up there, um, getting my spot uh, with Code Zero ready to go. So another thing too is the starting sequence in the mini fleet is slightly different than I've ever seen in any other inshore or offshore races and probably different for most of you that are listening to this. So there's a warning signal at eight minutes, then a four minute preparatory signal, a one minute signal, which is just more of a whistle with prep down and then the start signal. So eight, four, one, go. Uh, Most people are familiar with the five, four, one, go, Uh, but the eight is nice because it gives you a little more time to really make sure that you're aware of what's going on. You get your position, um, but it's also a pretty long time um, for a starting sequence, too. So it's got its pros and cons, but it's just it's it's one of those specific things I've only seen on the mini uh, side of racing. With the uh, starting line set for all 90 minis to cross, the wind was pretty far left uh, with the pin end, left side favored. This meant that most of the boats would be starting on a port tack with their code zeros for a close reach off the line. This was challenging because just one starboard tack boat with the right-of-way really could mess up your plan. However, luckily the winds became so far left, anyone on starboard tack would likely not have been able to cross a starting line with that wind direction anyways. Halfway into the starting sequence, I set myself up below the line on starboard tack in the middle section and headed towards the pin end. At about three minutes, I tacked on the port uh, below the pin side and started reaching towards the line. There were many boats above the lay line to the pin that had to wait for all the boats to fall off to get their spot. Uh, fortunately, I was below that lay line to the pin so that I would not get forced out and was aiming for that pin third start. Uh, no need to win the pin for this, obviously. I mean, it's a long race. It's a 1,300, 50-mile race. Um, but it was nice being on that favorite end. And I was really looking for clear air and good speed off the line. Uh, really be able to set myself up for the next couple hours of the race was the goal. As the starting line gun fired, the fleet of 90 minis were off on this 1315 nautical mile leg of the mid-transat. Terminal leave and I were just a few boat lengths below the line, with the code zero deployed and going fast. This was a great way to get to start the race. In the video, you can see there was some serious line sag, with the fleet being concerned about crossing the line too early. While I initially had clear air, I lost a few minutes later when the proto number 1081 to weather past me. Uh... Yeah, that boat ended up winning the leg. So the fastest proto out there was just to weather me. Uh, so not not a great way to keep my air clear, but at the same time, I mean he he didn't give me the bad bad air for that long because he was able to just take off with that code zero on that close reach. Um, and that boat is semi foiling, so it's got it's an interesting boat. It's got two sets of dagger boards on each side. So it has one set that are more the conventional straight dagger boards um, because it has a cannon keel. It has they also the uh, the dagger boards with it. Um, and, but it's also got a set of curved ones too. So depending on the wind conditions and the wind angle, that boat can either have more conventional setup, um, or it can have more of the curved dagger boards that go in. Uh, and that helps it kind of do like a semi-foiling thing. it has got a big scalp bow and, um, the, that boat just takes off on a reach, especially in stronger winds. So not great starting right below it, but it was pretty cool starting next to that brand new proto that uh, was coming off the line. Um, Yeah, and the line, line sag, it's interesting. I thought I was a lot closer to the line than when I uh, actually saw the race footage later on and realized I could have gotten up there a little sooner. But I think I also remember too, it was part of it. One, I definitely did not want to be over early. But then the other thing too is when I did realize I was a little behind, it's you know to get the boat up to speed I could have, probably could have you know, pulled the trigger maybe about 15 seconds sooner to get up to speed, but maybe 15-20 seconds, but overall I was pretty happy with the start. Unfortunately, I was unable to match similar angle and speed to the boats around me. Going to the race, I knew that my boat's design struggled on the closest of reaches, uh, where you were almost sailing up one with code zero. The boats around me quickly sailed by and headed into the distance. To say I was frustrated is an understatement. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I spent three years preparing for this race just to be in the back of the pack within an hour after the start. I was angry and disappointed in myself. Um, I was also, you know, really bummed out because I know there are so many people, you know, like you that are listening, that were probably watching me on the tracker being like, what the hell is going on out there? Uh, so yeah, so it was really, it was really upsetting initially. The first, you know, it was really upsetting being, being in the back of the fleet there. However, not all is lost. Uh, this is a perfect example of where I should have been able to sail my boat to its angles uh, it needed to keep up speed compared to trying to match the angle with the other minis um, that have slightly different designs. Yeah, so a lot of these boats have different designs. Some boats are able to sail closer to the wind than others. Um, and I could have either just turned down a couple degrees and cleared my air and get the good boat speed with the code zero, or I could have sailed closer to the wind um, and furled the code zero and gone just sailing upwind, uh, which probably would have been the better call uh, because of the wind shift coming up later on. Um, but it was still difficult to accept that reality in the middle of the fleet at the start at the time. So a good lesson learned there. Uh, It's just one of those painful, painful lessons and painful things I got to do on my boat. So the first race within a race. Um, So when you can think about this, this race is really set up into race. One is kind of getting out of the Bay of Biscay and going around Cape Finistier. The next part is sailing off of, you know, West coast of Spain and Portugal there. Um, and then the next part of the race is really the big part from the Canaries across to, uh, Guadalupe. So this first couple hundred miles out of the Bay of is really a big part of the race. So going into that, uh, with an East Southeast wind, our first leg was 215 nautical miles to the Southwest towards a waypoint that we were required to leave to starboard. Uh, it was about 30 nautical miles North of Gijon. I'm guessing that's how you pronounce it in Spain. Um, and two-thirds the way out of the Bay of Biscay. Uh, this was the waypoint designed to keep the fleet away from that more severe weather that I was talking about before towards the northern region of the Bay of Biscay. Over the next few hours, as the wind clocked right slightly, it turned into an upwind beat, uh, still on port tack with about six to eight knots of wind. So like I mentioned at that start, if I had just furled the code zero and gone close hauled right away, that really would have helped me out with that initial beat um, since the wind did end up shifting. At dusk, the wind was once again shifting uh, and it became east-northeast and increased to 9 to 11 knots, uh, which allowed me to hoist my largest spinnaker, the two, and to have better speed towards that first waypoint. Uh, it's interesting to note that... Oh, actually, I'm going to get into that here. Uh, with the wind shifting so much and different from the forecast models, my plan was to aim for the rum line or the shortest distance from the start. Throughout the night, I shifted back to reaching with code zero. So yeah, so the forecast and the models, they really weren't lining up. We knew it was going to be light and variable, up and down, sometimes on the lighter side, sometimes, you know, eight to 10 knots was great, but the the wind direction was just kind of all over the place and shifted a lot when we were out there. And I really wasn't sure what it was going to be um, looking at some of the models. So that's why I stick into the rum line was the, uh, my game plan going through this. All right. Day two, 26 September, still in the Bay Biscay. As the wind continued to shift, I began beating upwind in the early morning. I really enjoyed the first morning at sea. There is so much that goes into preparing for a race like this. And the day of departure is mixed with excitement, stress and pressure. Yeah. A lot of that. Uh, however, w- once I get through the first night successfully, I know that the boat and myself can handle many more sunrises to come. So it is great confidence boost mixed with the feeling of accomplishment uh, for getting out into the ocean in a solo race. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, I, I mean, the, the the feeling of accomplishment, I can't capture enough here. It's just, the amount of work that takes from the qualification process to preparing a boat, preparing yourself, getting to the starting line, you know, passing all of the security inspections and safety protocols and just actually getting to the race course itself is sometimes harder than the race actually out on the water. Um, you know, I mean, obviously it's not easy sailing a 21 foot sailboat out in the Atlantic ocean, but sometimes just being able to get that opportunity to get out there on the starting line, it can even be harder. So yeah, seeing that first sunrise—it's it, a pretty emotional experience when you're out there. Regardless if it's a 500 mile race or a thousand mile race or whatever it is, uh, yeah, it's 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 an awesome feeling. At about zero seven hundred, which by the way, side note, all times are now in UTC. Uh, so French is plus two hours, two hours ahead. Um, so now we're talking UTC, which just kind of helps keeps everything standard. Uh, I was once again reaching with the code zero in about 10 to 12 knots of wind coming from the Northwest. Everything was going well until I was down below and heard a bang and the boat leveled out quickly. When this happened, I kind of had, I had an idea of exactly what it was because this has happened before. So the weather strut bar, which supports the line that holds the spinnaker pole in place, bent 90 degrees when the boat loaded up at a puff of wind. Uh, this was really frustrating because this strut was brand new and it should not have failed that quickly. I just bought it from the, uh, the boat builder earlier that season and it happened once before on my first season. And I learned how to prevent it by basically, um, angling the spinnaker pole to pull po- spinnaker pole to weather when the breeze really picks up. And even though I'd use this technique, the strut still broke. It was definitely a weaker strut than the one I had originally. Um, but I was hoping it would work for it and it just wasn't as strong. I mean, so I got two, so basically I had two new struts and two old struts of the two new struts. One broke that second day. And then the other one was fine the rest of the race. So it was just one of those, I think the boat just had a lot of pressure on it loaded up close reach code zero, got a puff and it just couldn't handle it. So, Uh, but I was prepared for this and quickly dropped the code zero, which dropping the code zero when it's not furled on deck is never awesome or fun, but it came in pretty easily. And then I replaced the strut with an older one and hoisted up the sail and kept going. so, that whole evolution was probably only about maybe 10 to 15 minutes long. Um, probably took the longest just to get the sail down and go find the strut down below in one of my um, stack bags that I have all my gear in. But yeah, it got it back up and we're going. Uh, also, another side note I have a lot of these good pictures of the race tracker. So you can watch, look at the whole race tracker online. But then I also took some screenshots of the race tracker that you can find in the blog post as well. So you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Um, So right now I'm looking at, I'm kind of halfway through the Bay Biscay heading southwest um, towards that waypoint. Late in the afternoon and early into the early evening, the wind softened and completely died. Uh, It would not be the first time in this race that the wind died though, unfortunately. One of the support boats motored by and took a few pictures while I was eating my dinner. And there was not a breath of wind at all. And all I could do was wait for it to fill back in. So it's funny. You'll see the two pictures. One is I'm eating dinner. Um, It was kind of funny because they motor by and, you know, you wave hi and hey, and then they kind of just hang out there for a little while. It's it's almost kind of awkward because you're just like, all right, I've already said hi to you, you know, five times already. And they all speak French. They barely speak any English. And there's not much you can really say because you're just drifting out there. Um, I think I even had my code zero furled and the jib down on the deck because the waves were bouncing the boat around and there was literally zero knots of wind. Uh, But... As I saw the motor by, I was like, all right, I'm going to put the sales up. So at least I get a good picture. And so that's what you guys are looking at in there. Um, and then I was just eating dinner and you can see the main sheet's tight. Cause I just had the main sheet cranked in. So the boom wouldn't be banging it back and forth. And I had the code zero up and furled. So it was ready to go. So the second that puff comes in, I'm ready to unfurl the code zero if I need to. And then the, the, that second picture in there, you can see the waves. The waves were not that big out there. That was more of just a stylistic shot. I think they took... Uh, with the camera really close to the water because all you can see is the uh, the sails. You can't see the boat at all, but it was a pretty cool shot. So thank you, Namiko, one of the support boats for taking those two photos and sending them out. And if you follow the Mini Transit uh, website, they actually post these online too. So the website and then also on the Facebook. So you can kind of see some of these updates uh, when we're out there because even though we don't have satellite communications, the support boats do. So they'll upload some of them. Now getting back into this, the evening of day two, we experienced another wind shift. So I hoisted the A2 Spinnaker with clear skies and a rising full moon. It was turning into an awesome evening. As the wind increased and to the high teens, terminal leave was surfing down waves. With the wind speed continuing to climb into the mid twenties, I changed to a slightly smaller A3 Spinnaker and reefed the main. The boat speed was consistently over 10 knots and we were knocking out the miles in that evening. So the boat speed was consistently over 10 knots. If you look at the tracker, it was showing about eight, eight and a half knots overall. Um, but that's if you see that, we were actually going over 10 knots for a lot of that. Knowing this wind direction would not last forever, sleep was not going to happen. I stayed up all night, hand steering most of the time to maximize the boat speed, surf down the waves, and try to prevent the boat from wiping out. Uh, while the autopilot was great, it had some difficulty with the boat being up, powered up and the wave direction that night. So that's the end of part one of the AAR blog post. And we're going to go into part two now. So let's shift over to that. Days three to four, the proving grounds. As I mentioned in the conclusion of part one, uh, on the second evening of the mid-transat, there was clear skies, a rising full moon, and the wind was increasing from behind. Awesome conditions for terminal leave to surf down wave after wave with the wind speed in the 20s and my smaller, slightly A3 Spinnaker flying. We were knocking off the miles as the evening transitioned into day three of the race. Knowing this wind direction would not last forever, and my relative position in the fleet, sleep was not going to happen. I stayed up all night long, hand steering most of the time to maximize the boat speed, surf waves, and prevent the boat from wiping out. Well, the autopilot is great. I definitely had some difficulty Uh, with the boat being powered up so much in that wave direction. Furthermore, when I start wiping out her approaching, it's usually time to switch to a smaller sail at that point. So that A3 Spinnaker uh, was perfect. Um, The A3 Spinnaker is interesting. So it's more of a reaching Spinnaker. It's definitely bigger and more fuller than I thought it would have been when I first got it. But here's the great thing about it. And it can actually fly it from the masthead Spinnaker Hired as well. But the great thing is it's actually a reefing Spinnaker. So the bottom section of it, um, the bottom, maybe 10 or 15% of the sail actually can be reefed up and zippered uh, before you hoist it. And if you've seen the jib, how that reefs, it's kind of a similar system with a zipper all the way across the bottom of the sail. And so when I do that, I can reef this, the A3, and then also fly it from the fractional halyard. So it's a little bit lower on the mast, it's a little bit smaller the sail. Uh, and so that's kind of like the next step up. If the A3 unreefed was too big, I could always switch to that smaller reefed A3. So um, just something to consider, but I would have to drop it, zipper it up, and then rehoist the sail. So that's kind of another option I have if the wind was to increase even higher. And it's also nice switching to the fractional hired, uh, just because that is a couple feet below the masthead, and the running backstays don't necessarily go all the way up to the top of the mast. So in some of that heavy breeze, it kind of gets a little scary seeing the, uh, the tip of the mast move a little bit. So be able to go to the fractional halyard, where that's right at the hounds for the running back stays, there's definitely a lot more support there as well as the winds picks up. All right, day three, 27 September, Bay Biscay. Uh, Earlier this morning, maybe around 0-300, the wind continued to shift, and I changed from the A3 Spinnaker to the Code Zero. Blast reaching towards the waypoint off Spain's northern coast with about eight other minis around. It was incredible. The boat loved the angle, and I felt like I was passing some of my competition. I was more tired, but not letting up just yet. Throughout the morning, the wind continued to shift right, and I eventually was sailing to close hog course yet again. Hey, I gotta say, it's pretty awesome when you're sailing at night, when you have a bunch of minis around me. I think at the time, like I said, I had about eight, roughly. And all you can see is just their masthead headlight. And depending on what direction you are, if you're surfing down a wave or coming up a wave or something like that, the direction, the relative direction of a lot of these masthead lights can shift pretty significantly. Um, so I think at the time I thought I was passing some people, but I think I was all kind of just staying in the same pack. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really incredible thing to see um, and experience when you're out there. So yeah, that's definitely one of the highlights of the nighttime sailing in the mini fleet is just kind of seeing the little different massive lights. And also knowing that you know who a lot of those boats are. You can see them on AIS. You can see what the boat name is, who the skipper is um, based off the sheet that we have. Uh, And it's just kind of, it's good knowing that other people are going through that shared experience with you as well. Um, So you're not alone out there when you're, you know, hauling ass, surfing down waves, getting wet, getting sprayed with water, wiping out. You're not alone out there doing it. There's other boats feeling the same, uh, Feeling the same thing, so it's pretty cool. Now, during the uh, final few miles to the waypoint, uh, this was in the morning of day three. The wind continued to shift, which forced me to tack twice. Between playing the local shifts and rounding as close as possible to the waypoint, which was a lat long location and no physical way uh, mark, I feel I tacked at the right place as I gained leverage on the few boats around me. At 0906, I rounded the waypoint, sailing upwind at about 5.4 knots on starboard tack in 12 to 15 knots of wind. It was a beautiful morning at sea, though damp and partly cloudy, with lots of minis covered, converging on this one area. Beating upwind, I was sailing faster and closer to the wind than the boats in my immediate vicinity. The minis on the horizon started to come into view as I reeled them in. This moment felt really good and helped give me that extra boost I needed at the time. Passing this waypoint felt liberating as well because now we could literally sail anywhere we wanted in the Atlantic Ocean as long as we stayed out of the shipping lanes, uh, which more on that soon with the TSS or the traffic separation schemes. And as long as we made it to Santa Cruz de la Palma, we could really go anywhere we wanted out in the Atlantic Ocean. And yeah, like I said, it was it felt awesome. Sailing faster and closer to the wind than some of the boats around me, um, it felt right. I mean, like my boat, my boat does pretty well upwind. And especially it it was, I wouldn't say it was flat. There's definitely a little bit of chop, which I think while I was going 5.4 knots, if it was flat water, I could go closer to six knots, but there was definitely some, uh, it wasn't choppy waves, but it was, and it wasn't big rollers either. It was kind of a little mix in between that. Um, so that was kind of slowing me down a little bit. Uh, but the boat was feeling really good at this point. And so I was happy with that. And that was, I needed that. Now, as I passed the waypoint, two groups were forming around me. And this part's really important because this really drives the next couple of days of the race for me. The first group, mostly made up of boats about five to 10 miles ahead, tacked shortly after the waypoint to head offshore. I could hear some of them talking about on the VHF radio and I could see some of their positions on AIS, which some of their positions were, I might've had their position right before the waypoint and then I lost them and then I heard them talking about tacking out or some of the boats I physically saw on AIS were tacking out as well. Um, and the, the, another important thing that I think I talked about in the last podcast, but the AIS, I can see minis up to about 10 to 12 miles out, sometimes farther, you know, up to maybe 20 miles if it's perfectly flat calm. Um, but normally around 10 to 12 miles, depending on how the, the conditions are, the sea state, the weather, and then also how strong their transmitter is as well. And then for the giant ships, the big ships, um, because I just changed out the wires and I have really good, uh, connection, I can get some of those big ships out to 30 miles now, which is very, very nice. So the second group, so that was the first group. They tacked after the mark, going farther offshore. So almost like a northerly, northwest direction. I'd say like northwest direction after the mark. The second group made approximately four boats ahead of me, another four boats behind me, continued on starboard tack. I continued this with this group initially, but kept that first group in mind because they were also ahead of us and clearly doing something right, or so I thought. Um, you know, sometimes you think the boat's ahead of you might be better at what they're doing or might have some additional information that maybe you don't have. And so they're ahead of you. Sometimes you think, okay, maybe they know what they're doing a little more than me um, at that moment. So, but keep in mind, I am not differentiating between the series or the protos in these counts because at this point, we're all generally kind of sailing at similar speeds in my vicinity where I'm at. Uh, You know, the the protos that are back there with us, they're not the fastest protos in the fleet. And for certain conditions, like sailing upwind in 10, 12 knots of breeze, their cannon keels really aren't helping too much. Um, yeah, so, and with their older designs, they're not the scow bow boats. They're kind of more pointy bow. So we're all kind of sailing at a similar speed. So those numbers are both series and protos that I'm talking about in here. At about 11 o'clock, uh, as I approached the boat ahead of me, a few factors influenced my decision on whether or not to tack. I'm still thinking about the two groups. Do I stay with this second group? Do I tack and kind of follow that first group? And over the, uh, the next, or the, over the past 15 minutes, the wind had started to steadily shift left. So I'm on starboard tack, shifting left, I'm starting to get headed. And I thought it might continue to do so for the next few hours. And I really don't love sailing on a headed tack for a few hours if that's going to happen. I started sailing into disturbed air coming from a mini ahead of me as well. Um, it was an older proto that I was reeling in over the past few hours. And I could see the Spanish coast ahead of me rising up, so I figured the boats ahead of me would also be tacking within the next hour or two. With the wind speed increasing, I wanted to tighten the rig a bit because it was slightly looser than what I wanted uh, as we were in these conditions, and also you knowing that we were going out the, the, further out in the ocean, um, I really wanted to add some turns on the rig. And so I was able to add two turns on the uh, lured upper and lower shrouds, but then I needed to tack to tighten the other uh, side that would be you know that currently is loaded up right now. If I tacked over, that would become the leeward side, and so I'd be able to tighten those to balance them out as well. And then that first group also had not been lost on me, so I decided to tack, split the difference between the two groups, and this allowed me to ride up that lift, tighten the rig, and manage the fleet in my vicinity. So within a few minutes after the tack, the wind continued to increase from 18 to 20 knots to the mid-20s, and as gusts started to reach 30 knots, I added another reef in the mainsail, so I had two reefs now, and I reefed the jib as well. So with the two reefs in the main and the reef in the jib, um, the boat can really handle pretty well going upwind and strong wind. So 30 knots wasn't actually too bad for the boat. Um, the seas started growing. And that's really the hard part is when the seas start getting bigger or whether they're big or if it's just steep waves, um, that can definitely make it a little more challenging. But in terms of sailing in 25 knots of breeze with this boat in flat water, um, you throw a couple of reefs in and it does awesome. It really likes it. Now, let's talk about some of the critical, this critical learning point from this part of the race. This tack was my greatest regret tactically of the entire 1,350 mile race, but it was a great lesson learned. So I listed out so many of the points of why I thought I should tack, but really failed to equally weigh the reasons why I should not have tacked. That first group of boats was not as large as I thought, and as I thought it was while racing at the time. Uh, some of the chatter that I thought I heard from that group turned out to be boats that were actually just ahead of me, but I couldn't see the location on AIS. And I distinctly remember misinterpreting, misinterpreting when one of the skippers was discussing his more offshore route with another competitor. And I didn't realize until after the race and I saw the tracker and that he was only a couple miles ahead of me. And it blew my mind. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought he was going farther offshore and nope, turned out he was right ahead of me. Um, and I remember that one of those, that was one of the factors that really led to going offshore or trying to balance the two different fleets, the uh, two different groups. And then with the shifting wind, I ended up riding the inside of the lift relative to that first group and passed them all within the first two hours when they ended up tacking back. However, I did not realize at the time that those were the same boats because I think it was probably because, because I passed them, I thought those other boats were, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize how much of an advantage I had on those boats because of that shift. And so I was surprised that when they crossed my stern and I was ahead of them now I gained a lot on those boats and I should have just tacked back to go with them um but I thought there were still more boats farther offshore I thought more of the fleet was farther offshore and so I didn't tack at the time This error in fleet management it placed me as the farthest boat offshore relative to my part of the fleet um there's a few other boats that were similar to my uh latitude you could say of being farther north and offshore um, but those were, they were farther up in the fleet. But for where I was, I was, for us, went offshore in my, in like the back third. And then with the wind continue, continuing to shift left over the next few hours, I sailed the outside of the shift and lost miles of leverage compared to the boats that stayed closer to shore. And on the tracker, you can see the wind shifting around to the Northwest tip of Spain. Also note, uh, this wind depicted on the tracker, is not always hundred percent accurate. I highly recommend when you're following the race, pull up something like Windy, look at the different models, see what the current weather is doing, and also look at, you know, between the European model and the GFS and kind of see what's happening. Uh, Don't always take the tracker as 100% accurate. So I tacked with about 18 nautical miles um, from shore. That 11 o'clock, that 1100 tack I did, I was about 18 nautical miles from shore, um, which actually the point that I saw looked much closer since it was rising really high out of the water. So it was basically like a little like mountain and point and everything. Um, and so while no minis got really close to land, I think a couple got within maybe five or six miles, but not super close. Um, it was a poor assumption thinking that the boats would be tacking out within the next hour or two, because also many got lifted when they got closer to land and they didn't end up needing to tack at all. And so once they got around that point, it really opened up farther to the Southwest. And so they were able to continue on that starboard tack. And those who did tack maybe an hour after me, they still gained a significant advantage because they were closer inside of that left uh, shift. And I could have just short tacked to clear my air, tighten the rig without moving all the gear down below, and then tack back maybe a few minutes later. And this is really where fleet management is key. And I did not need to sail away from this closer group that I was with. I think I was really trying to catch that farther group that was up ahead, which note, I also didn't realize, like I said, I didn't realize I'd passed them. Um, but this is a key moment of where sailing, unless you have a really solid game plan, you know, something that most other boats don't know, sailing away from these groups does not make sense unless you really know that that other group is there. So overall, it was a high risk decision. I also think I didn't realize how high risk it was at the time, but now I'm seeing it It was a high risk decision that did not pay off. And I'm not afraid to take risks, but they definitely need to be continued to balance with the possible outcomes with the information I have at the time. So a little insight into this part of the race. Um, it's funny looking back. I initially do not remember anything from the rest of day three or that evening. In fact, when I started writing this part of the AR, um, I started talking about a front passing through and it happened later. Well, thinking it happened later that day. Um, but after looking at the tracker and my notes, I'm missing about 20 hours of memory, or at least I was before of, of this section of the race. And I only realized it when I was making the video for that third day and the timestamp on the GoPro video file um, was showing the following day. And so I was really confused. I'm like, wait a second. I specifically set the GoPro times to make sure they were in UTC so I would know when I took them. And so I was so confused when the dates were just not lining up. And so a big part of this is because my logbook got soaked and we were pounding up wind and it made it difficult to accurately write everything down. And so I... I distinctly remember looking at it and not seeing one of the dates that was on there. And then also having a wet logbook and not writing everything down or trying to backdate some of the the information. It's not a good reason or excuse. I'm not proud of it. Um, But it was just a factor of... I remember going back and looking at the GPS being like, okay, this time I was here and things like that. Um, But after dissecting the log, the tracker, talking with other skippers, I definitely think I have it all sorted out now. Uh, And yeah, it was... It was kind of funny because I wrote down all this information that I didn't write day four on it. And because of that, it definitely, I thought it was all part of the same day. All right. So now getting to day four, 28 September, still Bay of Biscay. It's feeling like it's taking forever to get out of here. So as day three turned into day four, that evening the wind softened and shifted between upwind to a close reach. And that night was damp. So as my memory starts coming back in, I remember that everything just felt wet above deck and also below deck. And my humidity reader down below was maxed out at 99%. Um, there was times that the boat just stopped moving due to a lack of wind and choppy sea state coming from multiple directions. And at times, it was really pen, uh, painfully mentally, sorry, painful mentally not being in control of this boat getting tossed all around. Um, at this point, it feels like I'm leaving the Bay Biscay and sailing around the northwest coast of Spain, um, but we still have a ways to go. An important factor is we have the option to sail on either side of the Cape Finisterre traffic separation scheme or TSS going around this TSS and farther offshore looks like a lot of extra distance and likely meant stronger winds with a front approaching. Uh, I decided to sail offshore a bit to manage both groups like those groups I was talking about before, but always intended to sail inshore between the TSS and the coast. Um, yeah, these TSSs are no joke. It's kind of like trying to cross a highway. You just, you you can't, Kind of like yeah, you can't walk across I ninety five. That's what these TSSs are like. You're not allowed to cross through them, uh, and so and you'll get kicked out of the race if you do. Uh, the other factor too is when we initial when they initially set us up for this race, they actually wanted to send us outside of that TSS um, due to the orcas that are normally close to Portugal. Uh, but once the wind conditions changed, they gave us the option to go inside or outside of the TSS, and so that was another big factor for a lot of people. It was like, do you go inside knowing that there's higher risk of orc attacks. Uh, but based off that and the weather and everything, uh, most of the fleet decided that the risk was manageable and decided to go inside the TSS. Uh, something to note on that, only one series boat and three protos sailed outside the TSS. Um, it was not necessarily the winning move, but that one series boat did end up fifth. They did very well. Um, and the other three protos, they, they didn't do, they, I think they were like mid-fleet. Um, they're mid going around it. So it wasn't like a massive gain. If I had gone around the TSS, I think at this other point too, I remember that night when the wind was just not, was just non-existent and it was, you know, I think I had to furl the code zero for a little bit. I was just drifting there with no wind and the waves are just knocking the boat around. It's just, it's so painful when you hear the running backstage, just hitting the sail and you got to just click down the main sheet. So the boom doesn't go back and forth and click down the traveler. It just, it sucks. But it was even worse. So I think for a lot of it, I didn't see any boats around. I saw one boat on the AIS tracker for a little bit. Um, But just knowing that I was in the back of the fleet and then not see anyone for that next evening was just mentally, it was very, very tough. Um, So I was definitely struggling with that. And I think it was a combination of struggling with it. But then also that pushes you to not want to sleep as much, to not take care of yourself as much, to try to get every little, you know, 10th of not a boat speed that you can. Um, So I was using that to fuel myself to keep pushing the boat harder and harder and wasn't giving up. So as much as I complained about being in the back of the pack, I didn't use it to give me an excuse to slow down or to take a break. It was, it was pushing me harder and harder throughout this entire race. Now, fast forward to 1300 on day four, the winds are 30 to 35 knots and gusting to 40 plus with big waves. Uh, Yeah, big waves. Um, As as the front approached, I was beating up wind on Port Tack, still paralleling the coast and remaining farther offshore than most of the fleet. So we still haven't gotten to that TSS yet. We're still northwest coast of Spain, going that transition point from Bay of Biscay to Atlantic Ocean. uh, And the tracker does not accurately display the winds during this part of the race. Uh, To say it was difficult is an understatement. Uh, I remember talking to Jane afterwards when she was looking at it she was like, oh, you know, twenty-five, twenty-eight knots, that's not too bad. And then they heard about the one boat getting dismasted and were like, Whoa, that must have been a lot more rough out there. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it was a lot more rough out there. So let's get into that. So as I'm traversing steep waves, the boat is wet and a mess. Uh yeah, when I say that, like, go back and take a look at some videos I just posted. It was so wet there, I was it was a mess and things were yeah, it was just when you go through some of these systems, sometimes everything just gets all over the place. Um part of that was I had to get the code zero off the deck and down below, which brought down a lot of water with it. And I should have done this earlier, but I think I was overly hopeful for another wind shift and between the sail and a few waves splashing into the cockpit, which normally it doesn't get wet, but sometimes you have a few parts of the wave might get into the boat a little bit, or at least some of the spray. Um, and then my own wet foul weather gear, every time I go down below, when I'm wearing wet foul weather gear, everything just gets soaked down there. Uh, I mean, it's a 21-foot boat. There's not a lot of room. And so the boat was just soaking wet down below now. Now, the cloud situation that day was interesting to note and different from most other fronts I've sailed through in this area. So throughout the day, I experienced a range from partly cloudy to almost dark and overcast, and then to crystal clear skies where I could see the clouds all around the horizon. I just remember sailing out there being like, wow, this is an unbelievable moment right now. It was pretty wild sailing in steady 35 knots of wind with the bright sun shining for a few hours. Uh, it was, yeah, I feel like it really, really happens in the Bay of Biscay like that, but not before long though, I was back into the clouds once more as the afternoon set, sun set on. At 1430, I kind of realized it was time to tack. So even though the wind direction was not great, I really didn't want to keep sailing away from everyone. I still I hadn't seen a boat in hours at that point on AIS. um, I was surprised there was a few fishing boats out there, which trying to fish in 35 knots gusting the 40 doesn't sound awesome, but they, I guess they were able to do it. Uh, And yeah, so I started the process of tacking about 30 minutes before 1500 UTC, which 1500 is important because every day that's when we get our weather forecast briefing. I wanted to head back closer to shore. uh, Like I said, since I hadn't seen any minis in a few hours and I did not want to keep sailing away from the fleet tacking these boats in strong winds and big seas is not easy or decision to take lightly though. Physically, it can be exhausting moving all the gear sacked down below, it takes time, it slows down the boat, and you always have the risk of breaking something on board too. Um, you know, I've only broken luckily I've only broken a mast once, but that was also when we were tacking at night and you know, long story there, but uh, likely the D1 got loose and the mast broke basically right after we completed the tack. So it's things like that. When you tack a boat in heavy air, you always got to double check the rig, things like that, but something has the potential to go around. So not a reason to not tack, but it's just always something that's in the back of your mind. Something that's always in the back of my mind too. So after physically demanding four days of racing, the weather forecast was difficult to understand with multiple, uh, four, I think high pressure systems in the area of interest, all interacting with each other to create varying wind angle and velocities. With this forecast, I was not truly confident on where to go exactly. Other than I wanted to go between the TSS and the Spanish coastline, um, the rankings were also quite depressing to hear at the time too. Um, you know, it, they sounded a lot worse when I listened at the time. When I look at the tracker, I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. Like I could get, cl- like I'm not far from the fleet. You know, it's amazing how much reassuring reassuring it is when you see it on the tracker, being like, oh, I could have gotten. But on this one thing, I would have been right back in a pack or something like that. Um, For context, the rankings are captured at 7 UTC and then broadcast at the end of the 1500 UTC weather briefing. So they're not right up to date. So these weather forecasts, it was before the front hit us. So I really wasn't sure how I'd manage the front compared to the rest of the fleet. Um, The two previous nights, I had pushed the boat and myself hard, really trying to pass boats and gain any advantage possible. Um, but despite the high and then also low speeds, um, and a quick and quick sale changes, I was still in the back of the fleet and that was tough on me emotionally, but I was nowhere close to giving up on racing and pushed ahead. Now in here, I have on the blog post at this point, I have a good video linked in there. So I have a couple different videos posted from this day four, uh, on YouTube. There's a good like eight minute video where you really see a lot of me kind of breaking everything down, talking through a lot of stuff. So if you got some time, look at that. If not, I have the shorter couple minute video on YouTube or sorry, on Instagram uh, and Facebook. And then on um, on the reels on those, I also posted more of like the 50 second one, too. So if you don't have any time, look at the reel. But if you got more time, definitely check out the longer videos and the one on YouTube. Now, as the evening came, uh, sorry, let's see. As the evening came, the front continued to pass through and the wind slowly decreased from the 30s to 20s. And when the wind dropped to 15 to 18 knots, it felt pleasant for the first time in a while. Which, if you know, beating up wind in 15 to 18 knots normally is not fun. It felt so relaxing at this point. Unfortunately, with the front passing through, that also meant so too was the wind. Later that evening and into the morning, the wind speed ranged from zero to three knots. The waves were still rolling through and the masts and sails were constantly getting thrown from side to side, causing the boat to lose any power and speed. Everything on deck and below deck was damp. There was a slight chill in the air. And I wore my sweat like dry suit. Um, sorry, my sweat like deck suit, which is a dry suit for about the next 12 hours, which was awesome and kept me warm throughout the entire night. So with that, I have an awesome set of gill weather gear that I wear for most of the racing. Um, but if anyone ever knows, even with the best foul weather gear out there, sometimes you just get soaked in it, especially if you're going through some big seas and things like that. And then with the humidity, nothing dries out. Uh, and so sometimes it's really nice to just pull a dry suit out of a, uh, watertight bag and just switch that out. And yeah, the, the dry suit I have is awesome. So thank you, Switlick, for that. And it's funny, I've worn this dry suit now three out of the past three times when I'm rounding this Northwest part of Spain and Cape Finisterre area, uh, where the Atlantic ocean meets the Bay Biscay. And this area is pretty extreme. So having that dry suit really, really helps. And even though the wind was light. I had to be prepared for it to quickly jump back to 30 knots again. Cause you just never know here. The possibility is always there. And the worst thing is to the worst thing is to get through a front like that um, or any kind of heavy weather and then to let your guard down when you're wet, cold, tired. The last thing you want to do is not be prepared for another system to come in quickly. So that's why I threw on that, that deck suit and lived in it for the next couple hours, next 12 hours plus. Um because I wanted to be ready for whatever Whatever, you know, Cape Finisterre had to throw at me. Now, this part of the race was a real test for all the skippers, myself included. Mentally, I struggled at times with the wind, then the lack of wind, being wet, and being in the back of the fleet. I never took my foot off the gas pedal, so to speak, but I had way too much time to contemplate each tactical navigational decision up to that point. Also, part of the time is I had an awesome MP3 player playing music and podcasts and and audiobooks up to that third day. And then somehow it got wet when I think it was charging. And for the rest of the race, I did not have any music on board or anything to listen to. So when you talk about contemplating your tactical decisions and you can't distract yourself with any sort of music or, you know, podcasts, talk about painful. So, and it's not easy because you can't have your phone out there to listen to anything because you got to turn your phone into the race committee. So for the MP3 players, you have to find one that doesn't have any sort of GPS in it or satellite communications or phone connectivity um, Cause anything like that will get you disqualified. Um, so yeah, so I, so Jane was able to find some awesome uh, MP3 players for me. So yes, yeah, so I had one for that. got broken. I am buying two new ones. So I have a backup uh, for this next leg. So that's definitely going to help. Uh, I would learn a few days later that one of my fellow competitors had dismasted during the front, but made it safely to the Spanish coastline. And he ended up retiring from the race afterwards. I heard also the reason why he really retired from the race was not because of the dismasting. Obviously, that's a challenge. and He was going to try to fix the mast or get a new one or something like that. But I heard it was, I don't think he had good fenders on the boat or something like that, and that the boat got smashed up when he got pulled into that Spanish port, getting tied up next to a uh, concrete pier. I heard the boat got a lot of damage from that. So something to factor in is always being ready, have some fenders, be ready for pulling into port, that kind of thing, which I was, I got some extra fenders on my boat. Um, so yeah, it was really, that was tough to see. So the, the day prior to his dismasting, we actually crossed paths within a mile of each other. And I specifically remember him sailing right behind me and he ended up being part of that group one that I was trying to that chase and he sailed, uh, right behind me as, um, as we kept on going. So it's tough for that. And he's also, he's a friend of mine, you know, cause I'm a friend out here you know, we've had dinner together before some of the other races and we see each other on the the pontoon. Um, leading up to the start of this race, he was probably three boats down from me in the pontoon and, you know, exchange tools and say hi to each other every day. And so it's tough, you know, the reality of the situation really hit close to home to me when I heard about that. Um, but I was really glad to hear that he was okay. And then later on, I discovered when I was looking at the tracker, I was only about 20 miles Northwest of his location when he dismasted. Um, so those were, I mean, I was in the same kind of conditions um, that he was in. And then while racing, I also heard over the VHF radio, another friend that had uh, to climb his mast in the large seas to tighten his Leeward D2 shroud. So this shroud was going from his first um, spreader up to the mast just below his second spreader. And it had unwound and come complete, completely loose. And he only noticed this when the mast started making a strange noise as it was bending uncontrollably in the middle between each wave. Uh, a week later, shortly after the finish, his bruises were still visible from slamming into the mast while he tried to save his rig, which he saved it successfully. Um, but he also said it, the first two threads of getting that D2 back on there took about 30 minutes for him to screw it on because um, the the waves were just knocking the boat around. He's getting thrown around and beat up. and It's incredible the lengths that many sailors and most offshore sailors will go to protect their boats. And, uh, you know that's because the edge between racing and survival can quickly be cut turned into a fine line. So I'm glad he got that sorted out. Uh, it was awesome to have him on the race course. I heard him on the VHF radio a lot. We talked a few times out there. Um glad he was able to get it all sorted out. But you know it's like what I was talking about, you know, tacking and things like that and just being out there in heavy weather, um, always got to check the rig and yeah, check the shrouds. So overall, I came out of this front unscathed and ready to continue uh, racing the next 1,000-plus nautical miles left of the race course. As the title su- uh, states, this section of the race was the proving ground for the fleet. Uh, this was definitely the hardest stretch of this race, this leg. And surviving the front off the northwest corner of Spain as you depart the Bay of Biscay can be more difficult than the next five days combined farther offshore. The power and force of the wind gusts combined with the steep waves has a serious potential to be boat-breaking conditions. It is days like this in the mini transit, which remind me why the race qualification process sets the bar high for entry. The fact that only one boat dismasted is a testament to the race organization's decision-making with the start delay and the additional waypoint. And also my fellow competitors years of preparation. You know, most people it takes two to three years to get ready for the mini transit with all the qualifying races and the training and getting your boat ready. Um, it, this is not just a, Hey, go do a couple practice days and go out there and do the mini transit. It takes a lot, a lot of preparation. And this, these proving grounds were, it was the, the culmination event of that. So really happy to see. So make sure to check out the next AAR part three, where I sail around Cape Finisterre and along the coast of Portugal. Got some good downwind sailing coming up. All right. So that's the end of part two of the AAR. Let me pull up my other notes, see what we got here. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that's a nice little recap there. Um, that's really it for episode number eight. Uh, remember, sign up for the emails, Um, I got some more parts of this AAR. They'll be emailed out coming soon. Uh, so for the full breakdown of this race. Uh, also support this campaign. Donate uspatriotsailing.org tax deductible donations or through my GoFundMe page. Um, both of the links are that are on my website Uh, We have a few more people donating. Thank you so much to everyone that's donated in the past, whether you've donated once or multiple times, whether it was three years ago or just last week. Thank you to everyone who's helped out. It really goes a long way. Um, You know, I have a lot of awesome sponsors, I've said before, that helped out a lot with a lot of the gear and some of the funding, but there's so much cost that go into this logistically and just time-wise. You know, Airbnb rentals, flights, just living, you know, living out here for, you know, I'm out here for three weeks, you know, with no job right now. So all of it goes a long way to really help pay the bills and get the boat out the starting line because everything is a balance between safety and cost and performance. uh, And it really, really does help out a lot. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone out there. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple podcasts or wherever you listen, definitely hit a review or the subscribe button. Um, Sorry, follow hit or hit the subscribe button and then also leave a review. Uh, yeah, that definitely helps. And then follow me on social media at Facebook or Instagram, YouTube at PGN Ocean Racing. And then let me know what you want to hear about. Or if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer any questions, whether you're just casually interested in about the mini Transat, or maybe you are thinking about doing a campaign for the 2025 race or 2027 or whatever mini Transat, and you want to do it one day, you're just not sure when or you thinking about jumping into it send me an email, ask me questions. I'm an open book. I'll tell you all about the awesome parts of it. I'll also tell you about the challenges and my recommendations of getting from point A to point B and how you can make it happen for your own situation. Let's talk through it. So I'm always interested in talking to anyone that's interested in the mini transat to do it themselves, or that are just curious about what it's like out there on the water. Um, So yeah, feel free to send me an email. That's peter at pgnoceanracing.com. And what also when I'm out at see doing this race if you have any questions that you want to get answered um about anything or you got some suggestions you can also email jane at jane at pgnoceanracing.com and she is more than happy to kind of explain some things too that uh, you might be wondering about what's going on now just eight days left until the start of like two it's coming up real fast with that thank you for listening to the mini transit mission